0: I know. Julie, good to have you here with us this morning. Yeah! So is this right? Yeah. Yeah. I've known Julie for a long, long time. Her and her husband used to be worship leaders here at this church. Uh, We're we going to be in the book of Philippians this morning. So if you have a Bible... Uh, grab it, uh, grab your phone. We'll be in the book of Philippians, this letter that Paul wrote to this church. Uh, We've been working our way through this short book for the last couple weeks. Uh, God willing, we'll wrap it up uh, next Sunday, the fourth chapter. We're tackling about a chapter a week. So if you missed the last couple, I encourage you to go back and uh, listen to get some background and some context because you'll you'll better understand sort of what's happening in Paul's life as he's writing this. He's actually writing from a jail cell. He's under house arrest. He's, He's writing to this church. He loves this church in Philippi. You'll you'll get a little bit more of that story um, as you listen back, and and you'll understand what's going on in the life of this church as well, what prompted Paul to write this letter. But we'll we'll do our best uh, to to work through chapter 3 this morning, but let's jump right in and read it together. Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, finally, my brothers, Rejoice in the Lord. And this is, this is in keeping with his theme throughout the book. He's always, he's always driving this church to rejoice, uh, to be a people of joy, to consider joy, to complete his joy. And he's calling them out again, as he's done multiple times already in this book, to rejoice in the Lord. He says, I write these same things to you, and it's no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. But then he says in verse 2, but look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, he says. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, who, who put no confidence in the flesh. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. In fact, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. In verse 5, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's he's kind of laying out his spiritual resume. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And, And as to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was set apart. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, Paul says, I was blameless. He's got a very high view of himself, Right? But then he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of, of all things. I counted all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that, that the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So that I may know him, Paul says. So that I may know the power of his resurrection. So that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. He says that by any means possible, I would attain the resurrection of the dead. He's he's pushing forward. He's looking towards this resurrection life that he'll share with Christ. He says, not that I've already attained it. I'm not already perfect, but I press on To make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do. forgetting, Forgetting what lies behind me, I strain on forward to what's ahead. I'm pressing on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, let those who are mature think this way. Otherwise... If any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to him also. Only let us hold to that which we have attained. He says in verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For for many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears. So he's he's thinking about this, this group within the church that, that he calls enemies of, of the cross. He's he's weeping over them. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. With their minds set on earthly things. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we we wait a savior, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his. You can see he's always pressing towards this goal to be to be with Christ, his eternity with Christ. He's seeing everything in light of his eternity, in light of the resurrection by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. God, again, we pray uh, that even as we assess our own lives, as Paul did, God, that we would count all as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing you. God, that we would hold lightly those things which prevent us from grasping hold of you. Be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's so much here, right? There, there's so much here in chapter 3. We, we've said before that we're, we're, we're taking a kind of 30,000 foot overview of this book. We're, we get spend months and months on this book, but we're really trying to get out some of these big themes and core ideas of what Paul is saying. Paul continues his letter uh, to the Philippians um, <clears throat> just as you would think. He's calling them to rejoice, but he somewhat abruptly changes his tone. He says, Family, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, but but you need to be watching out. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers, the, the mutilators of the flesh. It's pretty aggressive, right? It's pretty jarring. I want you to rejoice, but watch out. Watch out. He went from, if you remember last week, he went from praising uh, his friends Timothy and Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2. He, these were his brothers in the faith, his fellow soldiers, fellow workers in the gospel. He goes, he goes from praising those guys to saying, watch out for the dogs. The evil ones, the mutilators. Paul's introducing us to this new uh, set of characters at this church in Philippi. This is a church he loves. This is a church he planted. Uh, if you were here last week, you know, this is the first church in Europe. And he says there's this group within the church, these mutilators of the flesh. These are are Gentile Christians who are, these are Jewish Christians who are looking at the Gentiles. And when they, as they come to faith, they're saying to them, "Not, not only must you trust in Christ, you must also be circumcised to be brought into the Christian community. That's what Paul's talking about here. Paul's warning them essentially that there are members within your church that are promoting a Jesus and kind of religion, a Jesus plus the law, a Jesus plus circumcision, a Jesus plus Judaism, Judaism. And that's not the same thing, but maybe in a certain sense in our own culture, we could think of it. Um, you need to have Jesus and conservative values. Or you need to have Jesus and progressive ideals, right? We, could, we, we all have in our own minds, we kind of carry around with us Jesus and. And Paul says there's no room for it in the church. We, we are a people who cling exclusively. We cling only to what Jesus has done, what he's finished on the cross. There's no room for Jesus and among the church. And Paul says, and he said it throughout uh, throughout the New Testament. It's it's never Jesus saying. It's always in forever Jesus only. And he even uses this kind of graphic language. He says he says we're the we're the circumcision ones. We're the ones who are marked. We're the ones who are set apart. It's the ones who who worship the Father by the Spirit to the glory of Christ. We who put no no confidence in the flesh. We who put all of our trust exclusively in the Lord not in what we do or how well we perform or where we came from, our one primary driving reality, the thing that is unifying us, the thing that we are exclusively focused on is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us and what that means for our eternity, how that that view of eternity shapes how we live our life now. Paul actually goes a, a step further here. He's, he's actually kind of flexing, right? So he's saying, look, you can't, you can't have a Jesus-only kind of religion. It's never Jesus plus anything. But, and you, you guys are boasting in, in all of your, your accolades and all your performance. He's saying, look, no one has more reason to boast than I do, Paul says. You, 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 guys, you, you guys think you earned it. I'm, I was the kind of guy who could earn it. If anyone could boast in their morality, if anyone could boast in their performance or their behavior, Paul says, it's me. And then he begins to list these, these essential accomplishments or his background, his pedigree. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, under the law, blameless. I'm sure for most of us when we, when we hear that list, it's... Uh, pretty unfamiliar right we don 't always know what he's what he means exactly when he says of the tribe of Benjamin or of a Hebrew of Hebrews, what is Paul really getting at and what is this, how is this relevant to us what paul 's saying essentially is that many of us many of us come to God or we relate to God, thinking that we we earn or we maintain our relationship with God or we earn his love or we secure his acceptance or we, we determine our standing before God. Based on our own accomplishments, based on how well we do, based on what we bring to the table, and Paul saying we don't bring anything to the table. It's never Jesus saying. Paul says, "I was." He, Paul says, "I I was actually the kind of guy who thought I could earn my way in. I thought I could earn my way in. In fact, not only did I think I could earn my way in, I think I, I thought I did earn my way in. In fact, I was crushing it. Paul says." Because if anybody thinks they had room to boast, I had more room to boast. Then he lists these seven, these seven things, this personal spiritual resume of accomplishments and accolades and pedigree. These may not seem relevant to us, but, but, but see what Paul is doing here. He's saying, I, I had all the right rituals. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Maybe you would say, I grew up in church. I've never missed a Sunday. I've, 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 I've attended, I've, I've given money, I've volunteered. I went on a mission trip. I, I, I was in ministry. He said, I, "I had the right ancestry. I had the right parents. I was, I was of the people of Israel. I had the right upbringing. More than that, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I, I, was, I, I had the right community. I had the right pedigree. I, he's saying, "I was special. This is kind of language like, don't you know who my father is, right? I deserve my place here. I had the right ethnicity. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he says, more than that, I was, I was so strict with my religion. I was the most conservative. I had the highest standards. You think you had high standards? Paul says, I had high standards. You think you had passion? You think you had zeal? I, I, was, I was so sincere in my faith. I had more passion than you can imagine. I persecuted the church for our religion, Paul says. I was so moral. I was, I was blameless. Above reproach. He's looking at his resume He's saying, if anyone had reason to boast, it was me. But I count it all as loss. Now, I think that many of us, we may not say, I deserve God's favor because of my success or because of my performance or because of my behavior or my sacrifice or we deserve God's favor because of our sincerity. We may not say that, but I do think that many of us Though we may not say it, we relate to God in a quid pro quo kind of way. A favor for a favor, right? We think if, we're, if, we're, if I'm going to live a certain way, then you need to sort of make good on my life. I've, I've, I deserve good kids because I'm a good parent, right? I deserve a certain level of comfort because of my career success. I deserve a certain level of respect because of my personal integrity. I deserve certain outcomes in this life, certain privileges, certain benefits because of where I've come from, because of what I've done, because of what I've accomplished. And we bring all of that baggage, all of that quid pro quo baggage, this this, if I do this, God, you better do that kind of attitude. We bring all that to how we relate to God. And it messes us up. Because either we do experience God's favor and it somehow makes our pride swell because we think we've earned it, or, or, we, or we experience a kind of suffering and we feel that some, for some reason God must be mad at us or we haven't earned it enough. Paul says there's no room for that in the church. This, this worldview has pretty severe consequences. Paul's saying this worldview actually, uh, it, it separates us one from another and it separates us from God. It separates us one from another because we look at each other and we either stand, we either, we're always comparing ourselves and so we're looking at everybody else and thinking and we're judging them, we're condescending, they haven't done what we've, you know, they deserve the mess that they're in because of how they've behaved, I deserve where I'm at because of how I behaved. Or we compare ourselves and we found, we find ourselves wanting and we think maybe God's at us. Maybe we need to just work harder for God to love us. Maybe we need to work harder for God to bless us. Maybe we need to work harder for God's favor. And Paul says, no. Says it separates us from one another. And ultimately it separates us from God because we miss, we miss the key point of what the gospel is. It's, it's the thing that, it's what Jesus did, what he accomplished on our behalf. It's not about what we did. We miss the point entirely what Paul is calling us to, we saw in chapter 1, he says, I want you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And in some ways, that's what he's talking about through the whole book. He's, he's laying out what, what this looks like, living in a manner worthy of the gospel. You see that in chapter 1. You see it in verse 27. This is what Paul's calling us to. And, 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 and living in a manner worthy of the gospel is not about what we accomplish. It's not about what we perform. It's not about what we get right. It's about what Christ got right. It's about how he performed for us, about what he accomplished on our behalf. I mean, the way I think about it is he won the race and we got the trophy, right? And Paul says if you think you're holding on to a trophy in one hand that you earned, you're holding on to the wrong trophy. That's a loss for you. We bring nothing to the table. He says, whatever whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for his sake, I I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. We talked a few weeks ago about kind of looking at the balance sheet of our own lives, right? You know, what would we think of as our own strengths? What would we think about as our, as our assets or liabilities? Well, as Paul looks at the, at the balance sheet of his own life, he, he says, all, all of my strengths, all of my accomplishments, my, my pedigree, my education, my morality, my track record, everything I once considered to be an asset, I now consider a loss. And I'd really, he goes a step further. He, he actually gets a, a little vulgar here. In the language that he's using, the, the word he uses there in verse 8, uh, which I read as rubbish, is really a word translate, that, that could be translated, it, it means something, some useless and undesirable waste. It means excrement or manure. Is anybody reading from the King James this morning? Yeah, what does it say? Dung. It says dung, right? This is actually an echo of what uh, the prophet Isaiah would say in Isaiah 64. Some of you may know this passage. It says that all of my righteousness, my righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, what is that all about? Because that's an interesting idea, isn't it? What is that all about? When 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 Paul is saying here, all of my accomplishments, all, everything I thought I brought to the table, all of my morality and behavior, all of my sincerity, that's a that's a law, that's on the loss column. How how can my righteousness, how can my accomplishments be liabilities, be dung in the sight of God? Well, in a, it, it's, it's in a few ways. On the one hand, and, and we see this pretty straightforward, that all of, all of those good things that we have, even, even us on our best days, all of our righteous acts, they are nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, compared to understanding what he's done for us, compared to his perfection. All of, all of our stuff, compared to his stuff, is lost. But it also means not only is it a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, it's also a loss so that we can count it as a loss so that we can gain Christ. That's what Paul says there. In other words, putting, putting our confidence in, in, in anything outside of Christ's work is it's idolatry, it's it's uh, divisive, it's soul destroying. It can never be, it can never be Jesus and it has to always be only. Jesus only, always and forever. Because all of our ands, when we say all these good things, right? I'm a good parent. I'm a good person. I'm a good churchgoer. I'm a good Christian. Paul says, so long as you're holding on to those things for what you think you deserve, you can never hold on to me. It's a loss. You're holding on to a weight in an ocean. You got to let go of that thing. You have to cling with both hands. you got to wrap both arms around this one thing, what Jesus has done for us. Because all those, all those ands, they divide us. Unlike, unlike, uh, uh, but, uh, unlike the ands, this Christ-only vision, this knowing Christ, being, being overwhelmed by His glory, understanding the surpassing greatness of Him, knowing that anything held in our hands apart from Him is lost, that's what brings us together, all together the same at the foot of the cross because of what Christ has done for us. I'm no better than anybody else. You're no better than anybody else. What we all have are best things are the liabilities on the balance sheet. If we say, look at my good behavior, Christ says, you don't know me. You don't get it. If we say, look at my resume, Christ says, you don't get it. If we say, look at my work, look at my accomplishments, Christ says, you don't, get, you don't know me. You don't understand what I've done for you. You've done, you don't understand what that means for you. We have nothing without Christ. We've earned nothing. We deserve nothing. Now, our, our, our best efforts to earn his favor, some of us, we, we, we have, even as little kids, we probably maybe had parents that made us feel that we had to earn their love. They didn't love us if we were misbehaving, or we didn't, they didn't love us, if we thought, if we didn't make good grades, or we, they, we didn't, they didn't love us if we didn't perform a certain way. We've brought that baggage into our relationship with God. And it's messing us up. Paul is saying, you, you, you can't earn it. Your best day, not, you can't do it. You, you have to be overwhelmed with this, this inheritance gift, this lottery win, this, this priceless, unearthed treasure of knowing Christ and holding on to anything else will prevent us from clinging to that finished work. We are saved, we are welcomed, we are given a seat at the table because of his mercy and undeserved favor. Paul's telling the church, don't ever believe the lie that it's Jesus and anything, or Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus only, always, and everything else should be a loss to you. Anything that may, con- may convince you or may trick you to think that you've earned something should be seen as a loss. One commentator refers to this section in Philippians as the, the essence, really, of Paul's theology. And do you see what this does? Do you see how this, this gospel understanding, the understanding of the centrality of Christ and his work for us, do you see how that fuels our radical unity with each other? Because we're not looking down on each other. We're not feeling superior to anybody else. We're not feeling inferior to anybody else. That kind of idea fuels this radical unity that he's calling us to. That's the kind of thing that sustains this sacrificial selflessness. This understanding, this worldview, this shared mind among us that Christ is calling us to. It produces in us this this deep humility. It It results in a profound, unshakable joy. Understanding what Christ has done for us all. We're divided by the Jesus hands. But we are united by the Jesus only. Paul in his humility, he knows he hasn't arrived yet. Well, saying, I used to think that I had arrived. I used to live my life as though I had arrived. I used to live my life like I had to earn my way. And now I know I have, I have not I have not arrived. I press on. I'm pressing on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. In other words, we, we, we press towards knowing Christ, we press to, towards knowing the power of his resurrection. We strive to make his life his life of self denial, his life of self sacrifice his life of humility, his life of grace to one another, his life of forgiveness and love. We we strive to make that life our own life. We make his life our own because he has made us his own. Paul's saying, in spite of your weaknesses, in spite of your strengths, essentially "turn, turn your eyes away from yourself, Paul's saying. Turn your eyes away from yourself and press on towards the prize. The goal, we do this by forgetting what lies behind us and we look forward to what's ahead. What's he talking about there? What's ahead for Paul as he's writing this? He's in jail. He's writing he's this chain to a Roman guard. He's waiting his trial and, and probable execution. He's saying, I am pressing on to what's ahead. I want to know the power of his resurrection. He's saying, I want to understand my life in light of my life forever with him. This moment is a speck. I want to understand it and I want to see it in light of this goal and this prize of being with him forever. So all my pain, all my suffering, and all my joy, and all my celebration, everything in my life is going to be reinterpreted in light of the resurrection. In light of my eternal hope. Think about how that shapes us, church. Think about how that changes our worldview. How that changes how we relate to one another. Pressing on towards this goal, this prize, Paul says, let us hold true to what we have already attained. And he's warning us, uh, warning us of the alternative. He says, he calls these, in vivid language, there are these other people who are enemies of the cross. The cross is what unites us, but there are enemies of the cross. There are people who, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Isn't that powerful language? Whose God is their belly? They worship their appetites, their pleasure. What can satisfy them? They glory in their shame. And what does he say about them? He says their minds are set on earthly things. They're not pressing on to what's ahead. They're not considering their life in light of eternity. Their minds are set on earthly things. Some of us here, we, our values and our priorities are solely in our citizenship here on earth. This short vapor of a life compared to our endless eternity. But Paul is saying we are citizens of a kingdom. We are citizens of a new kind of kingdom, citizens of another kingdom, and we bow our knee to, a, to an eternal, always and forever reigning king. And yet some of us give no thought to what's ahead for us beyond this life. Some of us have zeroed in on these moments. We forget what lies ahead. We forget what's promised to us. We bring all of our baggage and all of our division and all of our angst and all of our fear. And Paul says, think about what's ahead for you. Your citizenship is in heaven. You serve an eternally reigning king. This will shape us. This will change us. He says, "I'm I'm looking for I am waiting for that one day when Christ will transform my lowly body into one like his glorious body. He will put all things in subjection under his feet." Church, I want to ask you this morning, what are you pressing on after? What are we clinging to so tightly? What are we holding on to so tightly to think that we matter or think that we are are worth it or that we deserve it or that maybe Christ will love us if we do these things? What are we holding to so tightly that prevent us from coming to him open-handed and putting our arms around him, knowing that the cross is the great leveler? Do we see ourselves and others as needing Jesus and have we've fallen at the feet of the king, resting in, hoping in, rejoicing in Jesus only, with our eyes and our hearts to eternity. Paul is calling us, church, to re-examine, to reinterpret our lives, our suffering, our successes, our failures, our struggles and how we view one another, how we relate to one another, how we see ourselves in light of this glorious future. This eternal future, to understand it in light of our place in his kingdom, our citizenship in heaven. Where we will be satisfied once all those things we long for, that security, that hope, that peace, we're not going to get it here. We're not going to get it here. But it's coming, Paul says. I'm looking forward to what's ahead, Paul says. I can deal with what's happening in my life now because I'm pressing on to what's ahead. Paul says, let's fix our eyes. Let's let's fix our eyes on that future moment where we will stand face to face with the risen and rejoicing king of our homeland. The one who, who calls us together, who unites us under the cross. He says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. You're not ever gonna earn it. You're never going to prove yourself. You're never going to feel like you've done enough. We have to come empty handed to the cross and say, God, take me. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this short book. God, I pray that we would be a people who look to you only, cling to you only. God, hold on all the more tightly because we know that we bring nothing. In our own right. That what we have is grace. What we have is undeserved favor. What we have is mercy. And God that is so freeing for us. That is so life giving for us. God that is what. That is what empowers us to rejoice. So God help us to remember. Help us to do what Paul calls us to. God what you are calling us to. In your word to press on. Towards that eternal hope we have in you. To live not as. As citizens of this world only, but as citizens of the kingdom. God, be with us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.